Hello and uh, welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, CEO of our UK wealth management business, and I'm joined today by our global investment strategist, Victor Balfour, and our co-head of portfolio management, Hugo Cable-Cure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of macro market and portfolio activity. So, Victor, it's been an interesting quarter, lots of moving parts. Um, Can you run us through the kind of major developments? So I think headline, all in all, actually, for capital markets, it's actually been a pretty respectable first quarter overall. Stock markets were up about 7% in local currency terms. Bonds are up about half that, close to that, and about 3%. Of course, this does follow on from a very challenging 2022, Mm. as we all remember. And it has been a bumpy journey uh, in these past few months. Um, So we had a very strong January. Markets gave back a lot of those gains as we moved into February as the prospect of higher interest rates and more recently concerns over the health of the banking system uh, moved into focus. Of course, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and in turn, of course, Credit Suisse ignited you know, contagion concerns with bank stock prices um, falling pretty sharply through that period. It's also worth mentioning, of course, that the, that banking distress did prompt the usual flight to safety. Um, so we saw the rally in bond markets was pretty sharp, so the biggest uh, one-day move in, in short-dated US, US government bonds in the past 40 years. And of course, gold, as it does in these times of distress, did surge higher um, through March, ending up at about a tenth since the start of the year. So you say quite surprising for markets to be up 7%. You know, if you just looked at the headlines, you'd have said, no, definitely, no. that would not be the outcome. But you know, just in terms of the banking sector piece, do we think it's interest rate jitters or do we actually think there's something more concerning there because you need know, i think memories are still re- you know still um, somewhat evident around what happened in 2008 mm. etc so what what's your what's our thinking there so i think i mean look to your question is is the banking sector once again a, a source of systemic risk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're right memories of the, the global financial crisis are still relatively fresh and i'm, I'm not going to downplay the risks here because mm-hmm. In 2008 and its soft shocks were felt for, for many years. But I think a crisis of one or two banks, or if you add in signature into that, it's not the same as a banking crisis mm-hmm. per se. Thinking about the banks at the centre of this storm, SVB, Credit Suisse, uh, I think you know our view is the, uh, these are still relatively isolated, idiosyncratic events. And in the case of SVB, without delving into too much detail, you know, where this all started, you know, it wasn't prudently managing its balance sheet, its deposit base was under pressure, its assets were invested in, in very long dated bonds with little hedging. And as for Credit Suisse, I think, well, you know, its, its issues are quite well known. Mm. Um, they've been brewing for several years. It's been going through a seemingly permanent strategic restructuring with asset sales and capital raisings. And of course, its share price, even before this crisis mm. unfolded, it had fallen by you know, nearly 90% since, since the start of 2010. So uh, I think that that's quite clear. For us, when we're looking at other things, that sort of suggests that this isn't a wider uh, systemic event. You know, measures of market stress, you know, there's some technical measures we can look at, credit to full swaps or, or TED spreads. These did move higher, but not into what we might call red territory. They probably moved into amber, certainly not on a, on a level we saw back in 2008 or all the years in debt crisis in, in 2011. Um, and they've already started to retrench. And, you know, from a sort of fundamental standpoint, you know, overall, the banking system is much in much better health. You know, we think about banks' capital ratios, they're, they're fundamentally better capitalised. They have more liquidity to hand. Uh, and for us, this suggests the system is overall a lot safer than it was back then. And probably finally, most importantly, 
you know, the central bank, the banks themselves are on pretty high alert as they have been through this. You know, the Fed responded very quickly to, to introducing new liquidity programs to shore up confidence. They've also made depositors whole in those failed banks. So there's been lots of facilities there to sort of stem sort of wider, wider pressures. And then of course, the Bank of England, European Central Bank, they also stand ready as well. So, Hugo, um, as we said, markets have been reasonably positive, well, quite positive, really, albeit with some surprises along the way. How have the portfolios fared in the first quarter? Yes, so as uh, usual, these numbers are for the balanced portfolios and their new court fund equivalents. So for sterling portfolios, these were up around 4.5% for the quarter. Dollar portfolios, these were around sort of 55 to 6% for the quarter. And finally, euros. Uh, Euro portfolios were up around 4.5% for the quarter. So portfolios continued their recovery uh, that sort of started in the fourth quarter of last year. And as usually is the case, the differences in performance mainly relate to currency movements. And for the second quarter in a row, the dollar was the weakest of the three currencies. And so returns denominated in the dollars are a bit stronger. Um, I do think on the currency, Hugo, it is worth noting how much the pound's recovered against the dollar over the last few months, because I think, you know, during our sort of trust quartet period of madness, it nearly got to parity. And I think the low was about 103. And now we're not far away from where we were a year ago. And yet there isn't a single thing about that in any newspaper. No. And um, um, I mean, it, it, it's back to around 125 against the dollar. In fact, the pound is the strongest performing of the major currencies this uh, year. And it's, as you say, it's very counterintuitive yeah. given the relentless gloomy headlines in the British press. And Victor, what, what do you think is behind that? So, I mean, as Hugo notes, I mean, obviously we're 10 up high on 25. It, it comes at perhaps a slightly surprising time, not only given what the media tend to reflect on about the UK's own situation, but also the banking distress to push it even higher, which is slightly counterintuitive given that you expect the opposite in, in times, of, yeah. in times of, of safety. The dollar tends to do quite well. I think there are probably two important developments behind this strength. Um, the first is on the economic side. I think you know, the UK economy has been stronger than anticipated. So expectations of a contraction, actually, the Bank of England in November suggested that we were going to enter a long recession in that quarter, didn't come to pass. And actually, the UK expanded very modestly. And that momentum seems to have picked up as we've gone into this year. So those recessionary fears have faded. The other side of this is that inflation is still moving higher in the UK. It moved higher in the latest month. And expectations for interest rates haven't really changed. There is still further to go for the Bank of England. Um, and this improved that kind of relative interest rate or carry story, if you like, um, which favours favors sterling. And whether that momentum in the short term continues, you know, that remains to be seen. You know, sentiment is a fickle thing. Uh, but on a medium term view, we think probably sterling still has some upside um, from here. Good. Hugo, main performance drivers, how have the return assets fared and and, uh, and also the diversifiers? Yes, yeah, so if we um, take the balanced portfolios as the example, so return assets were up 8.3% in local currency terms over the quarter. So this is ahead of the broader equity market, which was up um, about 7%. Within that, the best performers were Topicus, the software company, and two companies exposed to the travel industry, Booking Holdings and Ryanair. So these three were up 36, 32, and 22% in turn. Uh, the Bears, Lansdowne and Phoenix funds also perform well. Uh, each of those added around half a percent to uh, performance of portfolios. Well, good to see Bears beginning to recover. Absolutely. Uh, and some of the uh, relative performance presumably relates to banks, given that 
we don't have any bank exposure, do we, on the return asset side? And also, what about these subordinated debt instruments that everyone's got so stressed about vis-a-vis the Credit Suisse uh, debt holders? Yes, so at portfolio level, we no longer have any directly held positions in bank shares. There's still some exposure to banks, mainly Lloyds and the Irish banks via the Phoenix and Lansdowne funds. But this is very small uh, at a portfolio level. And in any case, they look sensible to us and they haven't really been affected by the recent turmoil. These debt instruments are interesting and they go by a variety of names, so contingent convertibles or COCOs or AT1s. But I suppose it's the name that the regulators themselves call them, which is loss-absorbing capital Mm. that really put us off. So no, there isn't any exposure to that type of instrument, luckily. And how about the diversifiers? How did they perform? Well, overall, they were essentially flat. In fact, the contribution at a portfolio level was Mm 0.2%. But this mastered quite a lot of variation. So the bond component, you know, especially the inflation-focused fund, was a positive, up 4.5%. And this was mainly driven by the inflation-linked bonds. But also the Willow Crest Fund, which was up about 7%, albeit that's only up to the end of February. We, we, we don't have the March data yet. However, the portfolio protection assets gave up ground. This didn't come as a surprise. They uh, generally do as markets drift higher. So the Acura fund was down just over 7%. And the trend followers had a tougher period too. Uh, essentially, they were whipsawed by the sudden fall in short-dated bonds that um, Victor's mentioned earlier when SVB went bust, as markets flipped from pricing and rate rises to rate cuts due to the instability in the banking sector. Yeah. Again, th- this is something that we are very well aware of. It, mm-hmm. it, it happens from a time to a time. It's also one of the reasons why we reduced exposure to these funds late last year after a, a period of very stronger performance. With hindsight, we're a little lucky around the timing of that as it, as it marked the high point for these funds. And what have you been doing in the portfolios? Have there been any um, transactions in the quarter? Yes, there have been a few transactions. So within the return assets and the equity side of the portfolio, we reduced uh, American Express and Ashdod and added to the Microsoft position in January. And this was really driven by sizing considerations rather than any particular change to the investment thesis. We topped up Eurofins, the lab testing company in early March, uh, following some share price weakness. And we really feel that the core business is, is uh, performing well. And this gave us the opportunity to add at what we feel is a very attractive level. And the final thing we did was to buy an S&P put option to add to the level of protection within the portfolios. So we haven't bought any put options for a while, certainly for 18 months at least. Um, can you just talk through the logic of that change of tack? Well, it all comes down to the cost. So the main driver of the cost of, of, of these instruments, of this protection, is implied volatility, which is essentially the market's appraisal of future risk. Prior to the pandemic, this was very low, and we were happy to buy the puts. In fact, they, they've almost become a value asset in their own right, so given the pricing, in our opinion. As soon as the pandemic hit, the pricing shot up, as investors wanted protection. And it's really only in recent weeks that the pricing has finally drifted back to a level that makes sense, uh, in our view, to start buying again. So the puts aren't as 
cheap as they were at the beginning of 2020, but they are more like the average price of the preceding decade. So we're only nibbling and we're not spending a lot on the premium at the moment. Okay, good. Um, so Victor, where do we stand in terms of the economic story, given the sort of developments that you highlighted earlier, crystal ball time? Yes. Um, so, I mean, look, prior to this banking distress, you know, I think we had been turning a cyclical corner in, the, in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Um, momentum had been sort of building. Um, we're looking at things like the survey data, which is pretty timely data. Services in particular have turned higher in places like the US, but also in places like China, which is fast rebounding from its COVID slump. And of course, Europe, the worst of fears generally there have, have seemed to have abated for now at least. So as we see it, activity data generally for the first quarter um, has been at pretty healthy levels. Mm-hmm. So the growth story is holding up. The other part of this, of course, which is very important, is what's happening with um, inflation. Um, and here it has been subsiding, but in a somewhat patchy fashion. I won't go into the detail, but generally speaking, headline inflation, which is the overall basket, has been moving lower. The UK was the exception, of course, as I mentioned earlier. While core rates, the sort of underlying rate of inflation, if you remove the kind of the volatile parts of kind of food and energy, these have been subsiding much more slowly. In the case of Europe, actually, have moved higher in recent months. For us, we're not yet concerned about this stickier inflation. This was never going to be in a straight line back to target. Um, we're still generally comfortable that the disinflation trend continues, given not only the trajectory for, for energy and food, which is quite clear, but also goods pricing, which continues continues to fade for the most part. I should say that energy prices are a very potent part of this story, and this will continue to play out as we go through this year. We know that natural gas prices, for example, are down over 80% from their highs, mm-hmm. and that's that's going to percolate through to consumer prices eventually. As for kind of core inflation, the kind of underlying inflation, you know, we've always felt those rates may subside more slowly. Services are a pretty big part of that basket and they are still trending mostly higher. But a big part of what shapes that is what happens to wages. And at the moment, wages aren't moving up dramatically. And in some cases, they're moving low. And certainly in real terms, if we adjust for inflation, yeah. they're firmly negative. Mm. So that gives us some comfort. I think if we kind of wrap these pieces together, though, you know, I think what this means for policy, you know, obviously this latest episode has, has probably complicated things a little bit. You know, heightened banking volatility, perhaps increased reluctance by banks to lend, mm-hmm. does represent an implicit additional tightening of financial yeah. conditions, which reduces the need for the central banks to perhaps tighten quite as much. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen through March, you know, market implied policy rates that what the market's discounting, they retreated quite a long way through this episode, particularly mm-hmm. in the case of the US. Now, in reality, as we saw in the last few weeks, the ECB, the European Central Bank, the Fed, and the Bank of England, and even the Swiss National Bank, mm-hmm. they all pressed ahead with their recent hikes. Uh, kind of yeah. make, I guess a testament to still addressing some of those underlying mm-hmm. economic pressures which haven't yet changed. Um, so for us, there's still some further tightening ahead, although we are perhaps approaching the final stages uh, of this tightening cycle. And a bit further with that crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> so what does this mean for markets? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, prior to this, this latest bout of distress, you know, we had been getting constructive on risk appetite, if you mm-hmm. want to put it in those terms. As I said, the economic signals have been turning more positive. Growth is picking up. Inflation yeah. mostly subsiding and, of course, policy tightening approaching uh, its climax, if you like. As it stands, we don't think that these the banking contagion if you want to call it that changes the balance of risks in part because we don't think a full-blown crisis is at hand yeah and you know for the reasons i I noted earlier there are a few signal concerns that we are mindful of 
you know, that interest rate story may have faded a little bit, mm-hmm. but this development, you know, refocuses cyclical risk squarely on earnings, yeah. um, which haven't yet reflected these new banking mm-hmm. risks, if you like. So we're mindful of that and for that sense, and as such, I think that leads us to this, just we probably stand pat for now in terms of overall positioning, if you want to put it in those terms. Yeah, so a bit of a mixed bag, albeit yeah. a little bit. Sounds like you're a little bit more positive on the inflation front. Probably, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, Hugo, this is the usual question. Um, what are you excited about? Yes, well, uh, I was anticipating this question. So I talk... We're going to throw you a really difficult one, one call to know that. <laughs> I'm expecting it. So I talked about markets sorting the wheat from the chaff in the in the last call uh, in uh, January. And wow, I mean, that's uh, certainly been the case for banks this year. Anyway, we're seeing some realignments in markets. And as tends to be the case, this will begin to throw up some opportunities for us. So we have been reviewing the tech sector, particularly on the hardware side, where there are some great businesses. Uh, tech has had a rebound so far this year, but... Many of these stocks are still trading well below their their peaks, um, so there is a value there. We're also reviewing some capital-heavy industries, and there's a school of thought that these may prove less prone to disruption by technology changes than than some other types of uh, industries. So plenty of research projects ongoing. And that might be a very interesting topic for us in terms of what where technological disruption is going to be minimised. Mm. Um, it's a topic I know that uh, we're talking to lots of clients about. Mm. Um, so thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We always try to touch on the topics which you may be concerned or interested in. So uh, do please keep sending any questions you have to your client advisors and they will of course be happy to discuss anything that we've talked about in further detail with you. Our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So if you wish to receive them as soon as they're released or listen to some of our other podcasts, please subscribe to our channel on either of those platforms. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and for your ongoing confidence in us. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co. for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.